Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, a podcast for readers who want something strange and exciting and writers who need something new. If you want to support this podcast, please consider buying my new book, The National Gallery. I'm extremely proud of this book because it may be my best book, and it is certainly my most personal and heartfelt book. But just because I say it's heartfelt doesn't mean it isn't full of weirdness, like sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and elegies for my dead iPhone. Uh, For a limited time, if you buy a copy of the National Gallery directly from me, I will sign it, and I will also send you a signed copy of my previous book, The Politics of Knives, for no additional cost. So you can order the book and get your free book uh, with it at thenationalgallery.ca. That's thenationalgallery.ca. I'm also excited because it is my 10-year anniversary as an author. My first book, Ex Machina, was published in October 2009, and to celebrate, uh, now that it is 2019, as I record this, I've made Ex Machina available as an ebook for the first time. It was never available as an ebook previously, uh, and I'm giving that ebook away for free at jonathanball.com/freebook. So, uh, go to jonathanball.com/freebook, and you can sign up, uh, get all my ex- exciting news uh, when it's you know exciting and new uh, and other free resources that I'll just you know send you as I create them uh, plus a free book um, and again you can go to the nationalgallery.ca uh, if you want to find out more about my new book uh, and get a free uh, book as well when you order that so three two free books and a paid book <laughs> available to you in any case um Let's get into the show. Sitting here with GMB Kmichik in the GMB Creative Chasing Artwork Studios. And uh, talking to Gregory because uh, we were talking about book covers. And, you know, I'm thinking about book covers because my publisher sent me a form where I have to start thinking about book covers. <laughs> and uh, Wait, Although pub- I won't control my book cover, my publisher has kindly asked for my input and my ideas for a book cover. Uh, But I was thinking about you, Gregory, and you have recently designed your own book cover for Good Boys, you know, your book that's coming out uh, in in April 2020. Um, And so, you you know, you've done that, you've designed the cover, you can go, people can go now and go pre-order the book, and they've got the beautiful cover there, you know, on the pre-order page. Uh, but you've also well, thanks addition- for saying nice things about my cover. I uh, yeah, I do. I usually do the covers for my own projects uh, whenever I can. And you've also done covers for other people. Yeah, I know that you're doing it for uh, AP Fuchs uh, not too long ago. Yeah, you've done a, a number of other covers. What that was a minute ago, you've done but covers yeah. for. Um, I did. Let me just think. Most recently, I just did a cover for uh, Rick Overwater's new book. Um, I get offered covers a lot for. Uh, science fiction fantasy like smaller presses will reach out or creators will reach out Uh, I turn down more than I do just because I'm pretty busy doing my own stuff right now Um, but I've done you know most recently I had to do the cover for good boys for automatic age uh, for there's another book of Gregory's that's coming out. Yeah, book of uh, prose. It's a novel. Do you have a date for that? Uh, no, it'll be next year, next calendar year. It's 2020 still. 2020, yeah. Um, and then probably the follow-up for Automatic Age will also be the same calendar year. The way that we're setting up the sure publishing schedule. So I'm working on the cover for that also. Um, yeah. Cover. So you want to talk cover so design, the hows and whys. So uh, so now people listening to this may or may not 
really um, be designing covers. But you know, as a writer, you often, of course, you know, you've got covers coming out in your book. One of the things, so one thing, which just quickly talk about is just the status of the writer relative to the cover. For the most part, usually it is not. Uh, a thing that the writer has control of. Although I, like, personally have been very lucky and have had a great deal of control over my covers. Like, with rare exceptions, I've basically got what I wanted on a cover. Like, I've, the publishers have asked me what I wanted, and then I've told them what I wanted, and then they put what I wanted on the cover. So that's, like, more... <laughs> that's rare. I, that's rare, rare, though. I do... Yeah, I want, I want to just, before we get kind of get in the discussion, like, point out that it's, it's rare that that is actually the situation. It's more common that a publisher will ask your opinion on a cover that they've had created and may or may not really be asking your opinion. <laughs> right. And sometimes an author does not really see a cover until it's been finalized. Like Often they're only asking for your blessing. And Okay, yeah. so for, the, for your listeners, it's important to point out that one of the reasons why I've done so many covers of my own projects is because I'm writing and illustrating or writing or illustrating them. I, I have a stake in it, and I have a professional portfolio of cover work that I can show to a publisher and say... I should do it. Yeah. So in addition to, so I, yeah, plenty of I comic illustrators don't listening. do covers. Uh, yeah. And I just want to be clear to people listening. Like Gregory is, is a writer, uh, of, you know, books and other things, but is also a professional illustrator. So, uh, you know, there is a, <laughs> like, that's why he's got this love of cover control that, you know, normally people wouldn't have, but it, I think it's still important for people to understand what goes into a good cover one if they're ever asked about like for their input on a cover uh, and two like even just to be able to assess covers the publisher is throwing at you because you do have a level of you know influence and control maybe not control but influence as a writer um, it's rare that a publisher will really put a cover on that you hate but often See, but I, I think remember- writers focus on the wrong things when they look at a cover so I'm curious to know like what you think first off goes into a good cover like what to you is a good cover if you had to abstractly define what a good cover is like what would you say okay well I'm going to get is? there by way of an example so many years ago I worked with um, David Keck and Steve Erickson on an ill-fated science fiction pilot called The Dark uh, during that time, I got to know both of them a little bit, and one of the things that I was talking to Steve in about was the U.S. paperback editions of his Mazelan, Malazan, pardon me, Books of the Fall, and his big fantasy epic series that had been published originally in the U.K. Tor bought the rights to it and was publishing in the in the United States. The U.K. covers were these dreamlike, iconic representations of God beings that you couldn't quite make out. They were concept-oriented with really great graphics, and it, the cover itself felt like a mystery that drew you towards a story that was also seeped in mystery and magic. The paperback editions of the Malazan Books of the Fallen that Tor put out in the U.S., looked like a cross between Conan covers and romance covers smashed together. And they did, they, they did not do the series any favors. I remember him being really specific. I, I was talking to him once about those covers as well, and uh, he was telling me that he was really <laughs> upset that one of the covers featured chainmail, which he explicitly did not have in his world. Yeah, his world has no chainmail, yeah. and then the people are wearing chainmail on the cover. It, okay, so the, the thing that I, where I'm walking, why I went there 
as part of my answer. It's tone is really important. Um, so if I am if I am getting a writer to tell me about what they want on the cover, what I'll often what I won't do is say, tell me what it should look like. Mm-hmm. Because that's my job, to figure out what should it look like. Their job is to tell me what it should feel like. And how we get there is by creating a mood board, which is pretty common in uh, advertising and in um, you know, conceptual design for film or television. A mood board is a collection of artwork that makes you feel, that puts you in the mood that you want your book to have. It is not content-specific. So it could be these colors, this tone, this, you know, you might say here is a Klimt painting and here is some Star Wars concept art. It's a, it, mm. These two things have the feeling that I want my cover to have. Those aren't content. You don't want it to look like a Klimt painting. You don't want it to have Star Wars characters. But it makes you, the, illustr- the author, feel the way you want your cover to feel. And it sounds a little bit like, like you're coming at it from the wrong direction. But what you do is if you give me 10 images that make you feel the way you want your cover to feel, then I, as an illustrator, look at those 10 images and do my thing, which is decode. Um, All illustration is really pattern recognition, right? Recognizing what patterns fit what um, specific elements for what effects. And so if you give me a set of competently illustrated elements that make you feel something, I, as an illustrator, can look at what the constituent parts of those things are that maybe you don't even understand why you're doing it. And it makes it sound like there's this, you know, some formula. It's not a formula, but it does give both parties a working vocabulary. Because then when I send you something, you say, no, 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 it's more like this. More like the Klimt painting and less like the Star Wars art. Right? Then I can ask you now specifically, oh, is it the... Is it that it's made of semi-precious metals and gold leaf and all of these things? Is it the constituent parts? And you might say, no, no, it's the way that the figure in the center is so small, right? Now we're getting into the, into the minutia, but I should produce part of the work before you have input. And this is what your, hmm. this is what your publisher is doing, right? They have probably an illustrator in mind, and they're reaching out for a little bit of input on... They've, their yeah. editor has probably That's already reached right. out. And they've got something they think works. Now they want your input and they'll adjust based on those two things. So do you think that is helpful or harmful for the illustrator to have read the book? Uh, If an illustrator has time to read the whole book, that would be a luxury. Um, What I did with uh, Rick Overwater recently was I had him send me the pertinent excerpts from the book that he thought would make good book cover imagery. So he sent me a whole bunch of different pulls from the overall. And he, you know, uh, he was really great about the way he set it up. It was like, hey, here's the whole manuscript if you want to read it, but you probably don't have time for that. So here are all the important parts that I think would make solid visual elements for the book cover. Um, Tell me what you think about that. Uh, We had had a number of previous talks about what could or couldn't work. So... um, I guess, you know, information is always good. So you sh- I think if you can, you should read as much of it as you can, but it's not practical in most respects, which is why the mood board is good. Mood board plus excerpts equal a lot of information, you know. 
do you think uh, it's it's um, how literal do you feel it covers? could or should be like one thing I always do every time I've been asked for cover input like for the politics of knives coach has asked me you got any ideas for the cover and I, and I said well there should be no knives on it <laughs> <laughs> no matter what just make sure there's no knives okay well hold on why no knives because you what why were you wanting so, that specifically as an specifically edict for, for me I don't again this is maybe just me I don't want to see a literal connection between a, a title and a cover image because to me, everything that's interesting in like art happens in these sort of gaps that are left between things. So to me, like the cover and the title are together. So there's a juxtaposition that happens. I want there to be a juxtaposition, not just have one reflect the other. So I don't know if that's a you know grand principle people have to follow necessarily. But okay, no, it's not a principle. Well, here's a, here's some practical concerns that people should know about. Like, okay, let's talk comic covers, and then we'll get into paperback covers. Sure. All right, so. Uh, comics is sort of more my wheel well, so I can speak with that with more authority there. But as a general rule, the top third of the cover space you must reserve for the uh, trade dress and the title, like the actual title treatment, right? Which often a graphic designer has prepared before you, right? If it says Doctor Doom, someone else has got that mm -hmm. locked, right? So you have to assume that the top third of the book. Uh, needs to show the cover. Why is that? Because when you rack comics, the bottom two-thirds are covered by the comic in the rack in front of it on that staircase of comic titles. So the titles have to, have to speak up. That's why magazines are set up that way also. Right? Um, uh, paperbacks very rarely get front-facing treatment the way that comics do. So... You don't have to. You'll get it. You'll get some stacks with the with the book front facing, but there's usually a poster or some promo images that go along with the book, and so there's different things to consider there. Like you will look at a paperback if you go. There's a big trend right now of like middle of paperbacks having the phrasing right there dead in the center, mm -hmm. right? And it'd be really big and not much room for an image itself. Partly that's for people looking on Amazon. There you go. And this is because of how people are buying books right now. And so, and there's only so much budget for developing a book cover. And so you try to double task it as much as you can, right? When you're looking at uh, how... If you're looking at just Good Boys as an example, you know, moving into, I guess that's like a paperback comic cover. Like it's not a comic book on the rack cover, but it's a paperback graphic novel. Right, it'll be a graphic novel. So it's novel kind of paper. straddling the worlds. Um, yeah. So and I tried to follow the rules. So with that book in particular, I tried to follow the rules. Top third, really big. Uh, my pet peeve, like things that are. The done thing is the author's name is huge on the cover also. Um, I don't really like that. I find that a little bit ostentatious. So my name is the biggest probably it's ever been on the cover of a book on the cover of Good Boys, but it's also not that prominent. Um, I also have a weird kind of name, so it's like off-putting to people who can't tell what the initials are and what how to pronounce the last name or whatever. So it's just a combination of... It's supposed to be the story that attracted people and not the author. I mean, I'm not a big enough name that my, you know, if I was Stephen King, maybe. Yeah, but he sure. also has the greatest name for trade dress. He does, yeah. Right? King. It's literally like T 
taking command of that book rack right there mm-hmm. with his huge name. The king of horror. And that's right. It's, it's not even fair to the rest of us. The um, thing I'll say about... Well, can you talk really specifically about the Good Boys cover? Like, what is the cover and how did you arrive at that cover? Okay, so I did... Uh, what is the cover now is a giant, big, bullet-riddled metal sign that says the name Good Boys um, that seems to be part of the way in or out of some military checkpoint. And underneath it, the uh, father, who also has the head of a dog, and the son, who has the head of a cat on his back, and the mom uh, are all prominently figured in that main in the main elements of the cover. I had done a number of different versions of the cover, which you could probably find on my social media uh, when I was originally telling people that, you know, the book's coming out, that had the whole cast of characters. And it undersold what the story was really about. It oversold the war drama element. Like, it looked like the original pitch of the cover and the original composition of the cover showed a whole group of armed... Um, anthropomorphic animal people charging with their guns up. And that's not really what the story is about. The story is about a mother and father trying to get their kid to safety. And there is a military unit involved, and yes, the the metaphor of the cats and dogs is present, but the actual conflict seemed absent. That there was conflict on the cover was evident, but it wasn't the conflict that the book is actually about. So I went a different route of yours. I tried to show more literally what it's about. But, sure. But the reason being is that, poor, at least to, to my mind, Portage Main Press uh, has a very large portion of their book sales to classrooms. And you need to be kind of right on the nose, I think, for classrooms to know what this book is about to get a kid to look at it. Right. Now, just talking about Good Boys a little bit more, could you just summarize really quickly what Good Boys is about? Because then I want to ask another question about its cover. What is about? Good Boys is the story of a mother and father trying to leave a conflict zone with their small child um, as a state fails around them. Uh, bigotry, oppression, racism is raging all throughout what could be a civil war, what could be a invasion. I'm very... I purposely don't say. All you can tell is that the state has failed and there's war in the streets and there's two parents trying to get their kid out and both of them have military experience and so when the shooting starts, you know, for better or worse, they shoot back. But the, the twist is, of course, that um, the whole book is, an ex- is like a literal metaphor. Um, it's dog people versus cats people and the mom and dad are... A dog and a cat and their son looks like their mother so looks like a cat uh, and he sort of is identified by the the invading force the opposing force the sort of oppressive force are all other cat soldiers so he gets a pass even though his dad is a dog and he associates with his father his dad is uh, ends up being the pariah the one rounded up they're trying to put him on a leash and get him in the pound and right it's, uh, there's no dogs allowed in that new world. Now, do I remember right that the cover also has your t- that tagline uh, on it? It has the tagline, yeah, which is, uh, which is uh, you're either a cat person or a dog person. <laughs> That's yeah. so great. Good boys. Do you're, you think you know, that is... No, it actually... Okay, so it said you are, are you? either... 
the original whole bunch of versions of the cover said you are either as if making a statement mm-hmm. like I was the authority on every person which is in fact we changed it to a question mm-hmm. are you a cat person or a dog person inviting changing the trade dress to be more inviting to ask a question rather than to declare a statement so for that slug line that was a you know a major twist now when do you think that kind of like slug line or tagline is is makes sense on a car so in modern colloquial book covers you almost never have it i'm a huge fan of pulp era old school like black and white horror movie uh theater trade dress where it has a cover it has a slug line it has like a couple of paragraphs like written on the poster about what it's really about i love that overly didactic way of talking about your story and what most of those things have in common is they were all false it was just a way to get you to go see it in in my case i try to make it true what i'm promising on the cover is what you'll find inside the book I just bought a Doctor Doom. You're talking about Doctor Doom. I bought an issue of Doctor Doom number one that came out recently, and the cover has Mary Jane on it. Right. And Mary she doesn't know in the comic at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so. you know, but that, the, the, but you're about the pulp era. Also, if you go back to horror covers in the pulp era, were just beautiful. You know. Yeah, like I have a uh, brilliant things uh, that have all well, these great taglines. This is one of those. So this is an old uh, cover I just happened to have here. From a friend, oh, yes. the old day of the Triffid Cinescope poster, right? That mm-hmm. says across the cover in big bold, beware the Triffids, ellipses, they grow, ellipses, no, walk, talk, stalk, and kill. From the greatest science fiction novel of all time. And they list the, the title twice, right? Yeah. Day of the Triffids, Day of the Triffids, right? And then they have this big, horrible image of people being eaten by plants. The cinemascope, uh, you know, in Eastman color. Right. And, and what I love the, about the, it. The film stock. Is so being now, advertised now let me, poster. yeah, film stock, right? Because that was a big deal at the time. But Eastman, let me hold yeah. it way back oh, yeah. here now. Notice what jumps out. Yeah. Just the title. And, and the this is because line. of the contrast, right? That is established. You can tell what the name of the movie is and you know there's more to see, which pulls you forward and has you explore and read those things. Hmm. Tried to do the same thing with Good Boys as an example. Big, bold, yellow color, right? Set against high contrast against the title uh, treatment. Um, the bullet holes that come through, I've got little bit streams of light that are coming through there. So it looks very um, uh, intentional, but also those, those streaks draw your eye towards the main cover. All that little little bits like the slug line and my name and all that kind of stuff, you would find after you approached it. What are other things you just like when you see them in covers? Like what are just things that you like, you know, whether you have a reason for it or not, like things that just draw your attention or you think are makes for strong covers in broad strokes? Something I haven't done a lot of, hardly at all, but I'm going to explore more is um, I was looking at old... 1970s 1980s paperback horror covers and what they all have almost exclusively in common is black like they're mostly black with a single image that is you know quite provocative you know either violence or you know sexuality presented quite 
you know, in your face. And faces often. Yeah, but that's it. And then the title. And often the title treatment itself tells you a little bit of a story, like the way the letters are, you know, if it's like going to be all about bugs, right? There's some kind of honeycomb in the letters or what have you, right? There's, those are things I like that people don't do much anymore. And that's because like any kind of fashion, book covers go in and out of fashion. The style goes in and out. Um, there was a while when almost, I mean, you can, you don't have to take my word for it. Go look in the seventies and eighties. If a book had more than two words in the title in the eighties or nineties, right? That was rare. But in the seventies books often were like a sentence for the title. Mm -hmm. Right. And films also, right. The day the earth stood still, you wouldn't get away with that right now. Right. Still earth is what you'd call it today. (laughs) Yeah. Right. There's, uh, there's just these trends in how people treat stuff. So if you're trying to put your cover together, sometimes looking at the trend and doing the opposite is a good idea. One thing that I think bit me with uh, the, well, it was good advice. Okay. So midnight city, I got advice from the publisher at the time to make a cover that would match bookstores. Like it's going to be mostly in bookstores and not in comic stores. So make a title treatment that feels more like a horror book cover. So Midnight City is designed to look, the cover looks more like the horror novel trade dress that was sort of the trend of that time. My version therein. Um, But if I had stuck to my guns, I would have made it 100% pulp style, old school shout out to that you know, past era of comics, which I am referencing. And I think it was the right call from the publisher at that time to do it. Um, But myself, now years later that that trend is over, it doesn't speak directly to what the book actually contains. So So I feel like... You're hand-selling the book? It makes a difference when I'm hand-selling the book, yeah. yeah. Which I do a fair amount still. Mm-hmm. Right, which they go to shows and people see it, and and it doesn't say on the cover, um, pulp era characters versus H.P. Lovecraft and H.G. Wells monsters. I have to say that every time someone looks at it. Sure. Right. If it had had a cover closer to my original concept, it would have said that in bold. That's the or at least implied line, it right? in the image yeah. more clearly. Yeah, more yeah. clearly. Um, so, you know, just because you have a highfalutin idea about how it's supposed to work doesn't mean you always, you always get it. And once I had been locked in with the cover style, I treated all three in the series to that same level. Um, I did a lot of cover iterations for Automatic Age. Yeah, I remember seeing three or four. Yeah, then I was just texting you like as I was putting stuff together, trying to sort of figure it out. And what I find is, um, for me, having a few like I had, I send stuff to you pretty regularly, and there's like four or five people that are kind of my first looks. But it's it has less to do with the feedback they give me, and everything to do with I think it's done. The moment I have that Hmm. switch in my head, I think it's done, and I send it out. There's like a regret echo that <laughs> if I send it out and I immediately know, I'll know immediately that it's not ready. Oh, I see. Like once I've made the it's effort. your own reaction. Yeah, my own reaction to it is like I send it to five people and as soon as I see it in their feeds, uh, or not feeds, but like, but yeah. you know, uh, either the email or the text, and I see it there as its own thing and imagine that's it <laughs> forever, 
I know if I like it and whether sure. it's good or not. See, I'll sometimes show people things like that, but what I'm looking for is not so much individual feedback, but like trends in the feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, so there's a couple of people who like whose individual feedback I'd take more seriously, but sometimes I just want like, are the same, are these people all reacting to the same thing? And often, right. I love the yellow or I hate the yellow. Yes. As long if, as everyone's reacting to the yeah. yellow, you know, the yellow's right. Exactly. Yeah. As long as you're getting roughly equal. Right? Yeah, and for me, like personally, I want people to like, love or hate things. I don't want like indifference. Right. The other thing too is you have to be careful where you send your, you're getting your feedback from. So if I'm working on a horror cover, sending it to, you know, 10 readers that I know of which only two of them read horror books, their mm-hmm. feedback isn't as, I don't want to say useful, but it's not as specific as maybe the publisher wants. Sure. Because you're not seeped in the genre. genre. But sometimes that outside perspective is what you need. So, like, I wouldn't go so far, like, don't silo. Don't say, well, it's a horror book. I'm only sending it to these people who I think understand horror. No. You should send it to people who you think have taste, period. Now, if, say, you're a writer and your publisher is, you know, approaching you with some covers uh, and you're, you know, looking at your cover for the first time, maybe, or something, or, or cover ideas or the final cover, whatever it is, what are the things you think a writer should care about or look for? That maybe, you know, they might not think about necessarily sometimes. Because I think sometimes a writer just has the gut reaction of whether they like it or dislike it on the personal taste level. Well, they have to try to divorce themselves from the idea that they know what the story is. Mm-hmm. And the, the, every, every cover should set up a question in the viewer. A question that they will only be able to answer by picking up the book. Hmm. Right? Sure. So why are the family running away? Why are there bullet holes all through this? And why do people have dog heads and cat's heads? Right? Yeah. That is answered only by opening up the book. Right? If it just said, good boys, a tale of flight from a failed state. Sure. Who cares? Right? But you see those dog people and cat people on the cover and you're like, wait. Are they mutants? Is this in the present day? Is this an allegory? What is this? You can only answer it by picking it up. Well, this speaks to one thing that I think pe- people are often surprised about when I talk to, uh, uh, especially students who are often surprised to learn this, which is that like writers don't have control. Oh yeah, no control. Cover. Yeah, really. And yeah. re- nor should they in most cases, I would argue. Yeah, they're not good at it. <laughs> but the reason, the rationale for that is that the cover is considered part of marketing. Yeah. It's, you know, so some, if a larger press, you'll actually have a marketing department that would maybe have weigh in on the cover. But at a smaller press, you know, where maybe they're going to be more mindful of your opinion and so on, uh, it still is a marketing concern. And it still is contractually separated from your control, as is the title, right. uh, which is also considered part of marketing. Uh, yeah, what was it? I was looking at uh, Sylvia was mentioned, Sylvia Monero Garcia was talking on her Twitter account. I mean, she's a personal friend, but I, I didn't know this. Uh, she listed like her last four novels and their original titles before publication. Hmm. How one became this and this became this and this became this. And I always thought her titles were so great, only to realize that her title are sort of discovered along the way. That what you pitch, the complete idea of the story and what you title it, and what the market might respond to, you're right, a marketing department has some say. And the bigger the press, the more say they want. Yeah. 
the smaller the press, the less saved I want. I went usually. It depends, right? But like, yeah, if it's really bad. Usually, but yeah, I think you're broadly. That's broadly correct. Um, like for example, Automatic Age, the short story that became Automatic Age was titled uh, Heart Hole. Mm-hmm. Not a particularly great cover because it doesn't roll off the tongue all that well. It makes for a nice visual if you wanted to make one, and I, you know, there's some argument to be made that it would work. But Automatic Age sets up the premise to the average person who will see a book with robots on the cover with an Art Duvo kind of vibe and a, and a look of uh, like the future that was promised us in the 1950s, right? And, and realize, oh, the automatic age. That's when they said everything would, you know, it'd be automatic sidewalks. It'd be robots doing everything. It's the lands the Jetsons promised us. They see that on the cover and then it's a sinister vibe, right? It looks like there's some conflict. It's not the perfect world that was promised. So have you finalized the cover for that book? Then? I think it's final. Yeah, the one I sent you with the hand the and the wasp on it the wasps. and the robot face up front. Yeah, so I mean, to me, that's a nice cover because it... You've got this um, organic thing, like this, you know, wasp, a small wasp, that is like kind of overshadowed and you know is kind of in proximity to this, you know, mechanical hand. So you have like that whole basic conflict. The basic conflict of the story, externally speaking, is you know this this automatic world. Yeah, the automatic world gets rid of the one thing that stops it from running perfectly, which is people. Yeah. Right. But so there's this like organic, inorganic conflict. The, that the other reason expressed. there's a, there's a specific reason though. I, as an author of that book, didn't want, do not want the actual uh, father and son figured in that story to appear on the cover, because then it's harder for people to fill it up with themselves. Sure. Right. I have them appear in an interior illustration only in silhouette. You can only tell that it's that one person is smaller than the other, ergo a child. But the rest is up to the imagination of the reader. One, at least I hope, so that it can stand in for their own conflict. You know, it's kind of written in a way like, what would I do if this happened? And you can't have the main character too well defined in that, I think. Now, in that case, you're also... uh Automatic Age is also more or less a series, like a series of standalone books. Correct. Uh, and so are you thinking of things differently with a cover when you're talking series? I, yes, because I got, because of what I just told you about with Midnight City, I had to really, really like what I was going to do. But then the other thing is I told myself this, I promised myself, if after it's in print, I don't like the way the cover speaks to the story, I'll change it. Like I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be try to make them match. No. I'll just turn left. But normally publishers try to make them match. They do, right? Yeah. And I mean, the publisher obviously will have a say, but I will advocate strongly if I don't feel strongly about how the book is represented, and it's my fault that I made it, that I should try again, right? Sure. The other thing too is that since books in series, often now they want to take off. There's like this. Uh, series shyness so like it doesn't say that it's the second book of a series it looks like the first it looks like a new book and then you read it and you're like oh this is the second book in a series together they all match but if you didn't know you would just pick up so and so's new book off of and then you'd start reading and be like oh wait I've done it a few times I started reading a book and and realized it was the second book in a series yeah like um, 
Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think I had a copy of The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, which I was like, what a great title. Yeah. Picked it up, looked at it. I was probably had already bought it before I realized, oh, this part of a series. Um, and I don't like that. I mean, it's a great series, but I don't like yeah. the trickery of it. It's like what you're talking about with Mary Jane on the cover of oh, the Doctor Doom. That's a very cover. It's my own fault, but I, I don't. Even no, so it is in your cover, fault. Like, why are they? How do you know what a variant cover is, or when the variant cover is? Because you're not in charge of that. It just goes on the shelf, and that's I don't like. I don't like that. Well, I mean, I don't know. I guess I get I get conceptually why it, it exists, but I, I do find it an odd thing. But at the same time, I don't like literal. I mean, it depends. Like in the situations you're talking about, with uh, kind of more where you're skewing towards maybe a YA audience, or at least they want to be mindful of a classroom use or something. Then it makes yeah more sense why you might be going more literal, especially if you, your story has this weird metaphorical dog cat construct like you got to kind of firmly <laughs> firmly establish that as you know real quick you know yeah. what I mean like, yeah that's right the premise uh, like covers like tool in that sense yeah. but like whereas like a lot of time for the stuff I've done like the cover is more of like, its own disconnected thing think of oh and this is a trend that was really bugging me for a while so much so that I, I tried it a few times in my own like just rough up cover designs the way in which you line break the middle of a word. For example, Jeff yeah, Vandermeer's Annihilation, mm-hmm. right? Is huge block letters, but they can't fit across the book, so they break it up so it's three letters at a time, the whole word, mm-hmm. stacked on top of each other. And you have to, you know, there's a genius in it in that you immediately are forced to decode, which holds your attention longer, even if it's first split second. But the moment five or six books on the table are doing the same trick, yeah. now you look like echoes of each other. Um, the same with the double exposure for a while. That was a really thing. started to echo in the, with the white covers and one little object, like yeah. kind of Malcolm Gladwell style. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it works really well in the, in the minutia of a digital, like I'm scrolling through Amazon. And so mm-hmm. I guess that's what we're after now, right? What will stick out as a tiny one inch by half an inch square digitally? Yeah. I mean, one of the concerns I know that I've had, if you look at my covers for my, my books, the, t- the titles are getting bigger and bigger. Like my mm. title and my name gets bigger and bigger. And partly that's, I think, because of algorithm issues. Like in terms of like people seeing it online. I mean, this publisher, my publisher is still not primarily concerned with things like that because really they're selling books in the bookstore right. for poetry and, and, yeah. and more niche things. But, um, but it is, you know, a concern like, you know, is the text even large enough to read right. when you see it in an ad or whatever? Um, whereas, you know, uh, I think that idea of like, where's the, th- cover actually going to be viewed by a person who hasn't seen the book, like who, who isn't already like aware of it necessarily becomes like an issue. But just kind of go back to the question, like, you know, imagine you're the writer, you get your, you're not having necessarily cover say, or maybe you do have some cover say, but you're now looking at a cover that's been proffered to you. Um, what are the things do you think a writer needs to know? They need to know when they don't know what they're talking about. 
they have to know that uh, their opinion of art is limited to how much art they've made in their life in that commercial arena, right? It's akin to, and I mean, I've used this analogy before in other places, but, um, uh, you know, it's the idea of being in the arena, right? You're standing on the sand, you have your a sword, your shield, your helmet on, you're in the arena, the crowd is, you know, chanting for blood, and someone else enters the arena, right? Who you pay attention to is the person across the sand. You don't listen to the guy in the front row who's yelling, use your shield, right? <laughs> you don't listen to that guy because he's not there on the sand. If you turn to listen to the crowd while you're in the arena, you get killed right away. This is what authors have to realize is that they're the person in the crowd yelling into the arena when they're talking about covers, unless they make covers themselves and have had to be tested by the market to see what sells and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, They might, they very likely are skilled with words, but images are a whole other language. Now, on the flip side of it, are there red flags, uh, you know, to be like looking for when you're seeing a cover? Because sometimes, you know, I'm not going to name names, and it's, but sometimes, you know, I can think of a handful of publishers that I know for a fact, if you tell me this publisher is putting a book out, they will have a terrible cover. And <laughs> yeah. sometimes uh, yeah. the designer is just... Okay, we're talking about publishers, we're talking about self-published I'm talking stuff. about, well... Because, like, self-published Photoshop covers of, like, just Well, photo- that's another thing that's cool. worth getting into. That, that's kind of the next question I want to ask you, Blake. Let's say, you know, um, so before that, let's say, you know, you're working with a publisher, you're getting cover back, you know, what do you think are, are like things to be looking for on a negative side? Like, are there things to be wary of? Uh, I think the thing, okay, so art is subjective, right? But a thing to be wary of that is universal is there contrast between the color choices on the cover. Hmm. And if there isn't, it won't stand out at all. I wish I had a cover. I'll show you later. This okay. Book. Uh, I won't mention who it is because some people, you know, but might recognize it. But it's a book that you cannot read the title on the cover. If you hold this far from your face, great, right. you can't read it. Right. So <laughs> contrast. Is there contrast? Also, is there? It's like you said. If there's a central character and they are going to be shown, can we see their face? But here's the thing. And this comes across as like a highfalutin snobby criticism, but I'm, I mean it from a place of love. <laughs> if you are self-publishing your book, please stop photocollaging two images that are <laughs> of different photo um, pixel range, right? Into the same image. It's so bad. Well, let's just first say if you're self-publishing your book, don't design the cover yourself. Right. And two, though... Well, and here's why. So I was, at, I was at New York Comic Con, and across from me one time was a person whose book uh, did not... Okay, if you're writing a book, Dr. Jonathan Ball, about <laughs> cyborg dragons... That's an, let's call it my title, Cyborg Dragons. No, 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 I don't care what your title is. Yeah. If it contains as the main focus of the narrative... Cyberized dragons. Sure. You best have that on, on the, the cover. cover. You're kidding me. Right? 
right? <laughs> they were nothing. The Just a color what? and a like were a couple of words. And Amazing. so I'm looking at this and the people are working really hard to sell this book and in earnest. And it sounded like a really cool book, but they had to explain to every single person who came to the table what their book was about. And as soon as they would say it's cyborg dragons, people were freaking interested, right? Like this is nerd culture. Right? At yeah, like mainline. if I wrote a book Cyborg Dragons, that's when I'd break my rule and I'd be like, there should be Cyborg Dragons right? on this cover. <laughs> so I am across the way and I'm, I'm with my publisher Z2 at the time and I have some good cover stories from them too if you'd like. But uh, Sridhar at Z2, I, I turn to him and I say to him, and this again is a place of love, that book has Cyborg Dragons in it. Why wouldn't they put that on the cover? That's a great idea. I want to read it. All you have to say to me, I'm interested at least to look yeah. at the back and flip through it. And he's, he, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, most accidents happen a couple of kilometers from home. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And that's the cover, right? It's that's people fact. doing all the work yeah. of writing the book. Yeah. And then the last bit, they're like, oh, I need a cover. Yeah. And that's the accident. Right? Nice. So... Whereas if you go to Hollywood, they'll design a cover before they have a book. Oh, yeah, constantly. Because they know how important it is and how much it is potentially divorced. See, but they're dealing with the idea of concept art on a regular basis. You're Mm. selling the concept first. And concept is about tone and character. But you're selling concept to the reader. Like, that's part Mm. of what the cover is doing. And I think it doesn't hurt to think of it as concept art in a way. What would you say to a person who's, say, say I'm, like, self-publishing a book. I'm going to... I've... I've decided intelligently to hire a cover artist. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm trying to hire Gregory Kamichik. You're going to ask for a mood board and things, but like, what would you say like that person hiring an illustrator needs to know? They need to know the body of work that that person has done. You're not hiring an illustrator. You're hiring a specific person for the task. You don't hire a plumber to do your electrical, right? <laughs> you hire an electrician. And so if you're wanting a horror cover, you don't go to fantasy cover artist and say, can you do my horror cover? And then be disappointed that it came out like a fantasy cover. You don't come to me and say, Hey, can you do this in the style of, uh, you know, 1990s Jim Lee artwork? Because I don't do that. You want something in the style that riffs on fifties science fiction. I'm your guy, right? You have to know the body of work. Artists are not, you know, one art, please little machines. (laughs) Right, they have a body <laughs> of work, of of line, of tone, of texture. Of uh, uh, there's an entire reason why they make the stuff they make. You should try to figure that out, and then pick the right tool. Any final thoughts on covers, uh, cover design, or things you think you've learned maybe uh, through making covers? What's the biggest lesson you've learned making covers? Oh make sure oh wow okay so this is with z2 i did probably 15 covers for apocrypha uh none of which were used um none of which were used and there was it seemed no intent to use most of them from the very beginning which uh nobody knew you have to know who the shock caller is so in that case and i I don't hold there's no ill will like they contracting me to do the covers. I did the covers. I was paid for my time. There was no uh, duplicity involved. I don't mean that way. But what I mean is um, the publisher, and in this case, the licensee, licensor, I don't know, however that works. um, Neither of them understood, I think, completely 
who would have the final say while they were asking me to do work. And so now I would know to ask more clearly, you know, who it is that's going to see the final thing and make the decision if they're wanting me to try a bunch of different ones. Right. I don't mind trying and failing. I don't mind trying and missing the mark. Um, and often if I miss the mark wildly, I'll redo it myself. Like I usually don't try. That's not a revision. That's a mistake. Right. Uh, so that's a little different. So you should know who has the final say. If it's a marketing team that has a marketing plan, you should be talking direct to them so that everything you're doing helps them do their job. If it's a smaller publisher that just is going to try to get it on bookstore shelves and get it in the ebook, then you want a high contrast. You want it really clear. It has to look good as a tiny thumbnail and look good as a full cover. And those might be different. You can create different trade dress for those two situations, uh, which is increasingly more common these days. Well, thanks uh, so much for talking covers. And, yeah, uh, I got kind of passionate there. I could go on about the uh, yeah. minutia here for a while. Um, the key thing here is trust your artists, I would say. And have an artist. Have an artist. doing it yourself. Yeah. Have an artist. Have an artist. Stop <laughs> doing it yourself. <laughs> get an artist. For the love of God. <laughs> for the love of the dead God, get an artist. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having me, John. <laughs> thanks. Thanks.